With great data comes even greater access latency. Welcome to the Trino Community Broadcast, where we transform your latency woes into fast insights. Trino Community Broadcast is a show where we cover events and happenings with the open source Trino community and show off a couple cool things about Trino as well as Iceberg today. So, uh, hey, hey, hey. Uh, so today we have uh, our honored guest, uh, uh, well, one returning, uh, which is uh, David uh, Phillips, who is the uh, Trino creator and, um, uh, and as well as Presto creator. And uh, today we have the creator of Iceberg joining us, uh, Ryan Blue. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, great to be here. So, uh, Ryan, you're a software engineer at, uh, at Netflix, right? That's right. And uh, you, I guess, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hold off on this, but we're going to kind of uh, start picking into some of the things that kind of unfolded that got you to where you are today. Uh, kind of, you probably ran into a bunch of these issues that many people have seen over the years as data lakes have become a thing and, uh, and a whole huge amount of uh, table storage. Uh, and I mean, you see this at a, such a huge scale at Netflix. Um, and uh, eventually you kind of, uh, this, this developed uh, you, you uh, uh, coming upon creating Iceberg. And uh, uh, so we'll, we'll do a little bit of an interview uh, here in a minute uh, to kind of uh, find out about that journey that you took there. Um, before we jump right into that, uh, uh, Manfred, uh, how, how are we going to do the, the advertisement? So we've been trying to play around with how, how we do this. So uh, do, do I just kind of go in and, and talk a little bit about what I've done at Starburst to kind of talk about our, our sponsors today? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a good idea, right? Like you, we, we roped you in, right? Like how you got started in the Twitter community, which was pretty interesting. Um, because you like started trying to get a course going and stuff like that. We noticed you on obviously David, Martin and Dane at that stage were already in, in Starburst. Yeah. Um, really yeah. Ripping into Trino. Yeah, I forgot well, about that. So, so yeah, that was the interesting kind of like genesis of, of how I got in, in, involved with Starburst was like, uh, you know, I, I, I noticed whenever I was working, I, I, before Starburst, I was actually working at a, a engineering company or at a, 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 sorry, cybersecurity company on an engineering team. Uh, and we, uh, we were using, you know, Hive uh, largely and, um, you know, we, we found out about Presto and we were gradually uh, moving on to that platform. And one thing I noticed was like, there's this huge gap of like information about, you know, just, I mean, there's a lot of documentation for, for one, like I, I don't, I, I'm about to say a whole bunch of like horrible things about the documentation, but and David's on here, literally uh, uh, one of the biggest proponents of documentation and has done a great job at what we've done so far, but there's still like, it's it's such a vast space and with with trino connecting to all these different uh sub databases it just it becomes something that's very difficult to manage on you know in an open source sense because you know it's you're kind of uh regard relying on a lot of people who push in code to also push in documentation with that and so a lot of people starting out with Trino, they, there's a good initial uh, foundation for understanding how we, we are very strict on like the SQL standards and things like that. But there's like, for instance, one of the biggest confusions that I had when I came into it was like, you know, why is the Hive connector actually talking to a Hive like uh, instance, running instance or query engine in the back end? Like, because most other connectors are talking to those uh, type of instances, right? You have like an Elasticsearch connector, you're talking to an Elasticsearch database. But in, in Hive, you were like, why would I want to put a query engine on top of a query engine that's super slow? 
So, uh, I mean, just even that, it's, it's a hard thing to uh, uh, approach uh, in terms of how do you talk, how do you even begin that conversation with, with somebody who's brand new to the project? So I started taking a bit of a, a, a whack at that as well as like some of these confusing topics about how to configure the user memory and the system memory and things like that. Uh, tried to make them a little more clear by, by you know, starting out a Udemy course. Um, and, uh, and then basically while I was in the middle of that, uh, uh, Starburst uh, kind of hired me on, and and we we didn't really even know that I was going to do community at the very beginning. I think the initial thought was that I would would kind of be be somewhere between engineering and product, and uh, but then we we saw a good spot for me to kind of take a developer advocate position, and I had no idea what a developer advocate position was. I didn't know what developer relations was, and uh, just I'm still kind of learning it. But uh, in general, I'm my goal uh, as being part of the Starburst team. Uh, is to kind of help engineers uh, by doing stuff like Trino Community Broadcast, uh, working with with uh, Martin, Dane, and David, as well as Manfred a lot of times, and bringing awareness to a lot of the stuff. So, so I'm really appreciative to uh, to Starburst for you know kind of giving me this platform and giving me this ability to um, you know do this for my full time job uh, while I can also you know get the chance to uh, to do something awesome in this open source uh, space. So, uh, so with that, like that's that's kind of where my role fits into all this, and uh, um, you know, Starburst in general is is uh, just um, you know taking the open source Trino and uh, and building a lot of really cool stuff on top of it, um, making you know specifically for enterprise type solutions, uh, you know, a lot of security considerations, uh, ODBC drivers, like different things that we build outside of what's available on the open source. So definitely check that out at Starburst.io, and uh, you know, and and also uh, you know, thanks for. Uh, sponsoring this show, uh, as you always do. So with that, uh, uh, we're first going to hop into um, uh, getting into the uh, uh, some release stuff, and then we're going to go right into uh, talking uh, the the details of, of Iceberg. So, Manfred, you wanna you wanna uh, uh, cover a bit of the release? Uh, yeah, it was release time again, right? Like the numbers keep going, and the project is churning away, always bringing up new things. This time it was three fifty five. Um, Martin's list had a couple of things in his announcement. He always does this very succinct, uh, anywhere from three to, I guess, six or so bullet points. So uh, one of them was multiple authentication plugins. One thing that um, when me and Dane last year did this uh, security training, um, that was like a, a, a nagging thing in, 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 in Dane's side that he's like, yeah, I know we don't support that. And it is arrived now. So now with the multiple authentication uh, types you can have you can basically support multiple password authentication systems which allows you to it's just a small line here but um, it allows you to basically hook up uh, multiple password based authentication systems um, there's documentation about the authentication types already as well included that um, my team wrote um, and it allows you to for example have LDAP like an LDAP directory configured for password authentication. And then maybe if your company has multiple because you're like merged or whatever, you can just add the second LDAP one and then you can add a password as the third one for any service accounts or uh, to make sure you can still get in if your LDAP directory is offline or you have some network issues. So you can basically have multiple of these uh, password authentication types now, which is really, really nice. Wow. And has been a long, long, long requested feature. So um, that's there. Um, the other thing that was uh, added was column and table lineage reporting in query events was reported. It's a bit of an under the hood thing, um, but it can be very helpful to 
look into performance stuff. And then the other two things that uh, were mainly mentioned also is also planning performance for Kubernetes with Phoenix and SQL Server was improved. And we got uh, the order by limit queries uh, against Phoenix also improved. So um, the plumbing for that is in place now in, and could can, can be added in many connectors and we just knocked one. Is, is Phoenix still a pretty big use case? I haven't heard too much chatter about it on Slack, but I don't know if like a lot of people still really use Phoenix. Don't know. Hmm. David, you um, know, <laughs> you heard any, any chatter about it recently? I mean, clearly, if, pe if people are working on it, then, then maybe there's there's still plenty of, of use case for it. But uh, I've, I haven't heard too much about it recently, so just curious. I've seen a couple PRs come up for it recently, so maybe there's like one very dedicated uh, engineer that needs it. Yeah, who knows? I mean, like it, it it hasn't shown up. So like like I think it was yesterday or the day before. I got an email, like a whole whack lot of emails from the Apache project because someone went through and moved a whole bunch of projects to to the to the attic. Which is like a yeah. project that's no longer maintained, and Apache Sentry was there, for example. So, and there were a bunch of others from the Hadoop ecosystem that sort of were, uh, <laughs> I guess, they kicked the can, so as they say. Yeah. <laughs> but say one uh, thing we're missing is a good way to get feedback from users on like what they're using when things are working well. Because yeah. if we don't hear about it, we either assume that people aren't using it or it just works and no one's complaining about it. But it's hard to tell the difference. The no news is yeah. good news feedback. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's like, if it's crickets, what does that mean, right? Let's treat you. Right? Yeah, yeah. Now, the other thing that I wanted to mention besides the multiple authentication providers, which is awesome, is that um, we did a massive uh, rewrite and edit of our security documentation that we got in finally. Um, so now we have guidance on uh, the very important first steps of when to set, what you need to do uh, when you want to start securing your uh, Trino cluster, uh, also based on uh, a lot of the information from our training uh, that we did with Dane. Um, Where do I find that? That includes working with uh, just like, you know, in general, in order to have any authentication and authorization added. Yeah, that's the HTTPS. You need to have TLS running. So there's a lot of information here. Hmm. We have the PEM files and JKS files pages because um, in the past, the documentation was very much focused on the Java keystore files, which is a lot more painful to manage. And we do support PEM files, so might as well sort of like <laughs> point that out. Totally. And there's also the security overview page uh, before. And you see also there's the authentication types page, which is the one that talks about the multiple um, connectors, like multiple authentication types and then multiple password authentications. So, oh, very good. Um, Lots more coming there. We still have lots of plans, so stay tuned for that. Um, uh, other things that I noticed in the release notes is that um, the parallelism for table bucket counts is now a bit better when compared to uh, like a large, a small number of nodes. Like if you have many, many nodes and uh, a small number of buckets, the parallelism can be uh, improved a bit. Uh, one thing that I thought was very interesting is um, the information from spill to disk is now available in explain analyze. It's a bit of a low level thing, but um, spill to disk generally can have a lot of, like can have some performance impacts that you're not necessarily um, desirable. Explain analyze can help you with uh, that. Um, we also added some more improvements on the Hive view support. So we constantly working with the team uh, at, uh, at LinkedIn that works on the Coral library that we use for that. So there's some, improvements that's, that come, came in again. And then Unix time, in general, there were a couple of things on, on Unix time that 
uh, changed uh, like nanoseconds and like some some behavior there. And oh. Those were really the only things. So it was a bit of a smaller release, but sort of only on the surface. And we're already working on 356. So <laughs> I mean, small, small, small release in terms of numbers, but in particular, like that that multiple password authentication plugin is is pretty. That's that's pretty valuable, right yeah, it's, there. Yeah, it's it's a very impactful <laughs> change, right? So it's, yeah. Cool. Did you have anything else you needed to cover for for release, or shall we hop right, jump right into the the good stuff? No, I think that's good. Like, let's. Oh, let's, one let's... thing I wanted to point out. So, Ali, actually, I don't know if you caught this uh, the episode last week, uh, Ryan, but uh, well, we did this fun little little uh, thing where <laughs> with this iceberg. Uh, have you? Did you happen to catch last week by by chance? I didn't, unfortunately. Uh, it that's... was spring break, so we were uh, a little swamped. Yeah, and plus you just had a baby, right? So <laughs> it's like <Yeah. laughs> you're you're super swamped uh, as is. So uh, let me let me show you the fun little thing that we did. So I, I'll pull up real fast the uh, the previous episode. Uh, let me just duplicate this and go to the uh, the last episode on fourteen. Just look at the image. Yeah. So if you look at this image, uh, we we initially I initially just said uh, you know we need to have Commander Bun Bun uh, in a penguin suit sitting on top of an iceberg, and uh, uh, Ali, who who's our, our graphic designer who set pu pulls these together, she actually created her own iceberg, uh, not thinking to to just use the, the, the that uh, your logo is an iceberg, and uh, when when, uh, when one of our docs guys saw this, they were immediately thinking of this um, uh, this tweet. That that came out uh, uh, from uh, I think it was just a, an iceberg scientist or something like that, Meg Meg Thompson Munson, and uh, she oh, talks about, about how. Oh, go ahead. Icebergs should be uh, shown uh, flat instead yep. of right. Wow. Exactly. Or how they float. That this is there's yeah. a simulator that you can try out, and we tried yours. Yours works perfectly. Ours didn't work. So so, well. so picture like Commander Bun Bun sitting on top of this thing, and uh, if we draw that same iceberg uh, shape, uh, we we see that Commander Bun Bun just kind of eventually <laughs> goes and sinks onto the bottom. But if we if we go ahead and actually use uh, your the shape of of your uh, maybe cor correctly drawn uh, iceberg shape yeah, that has more of a flat top. Uh, we we see that it's it's much more stable and Commander Bun Bun doesn't go under the water. So uh, well, anyway, props, props to your designer. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Um, one of the reasons why we chose iceberg is that I don't know if you guys knew this, but um, no. uh, icebergs can be tabular. Um, which means it has a flat top. Oh, so very that's cool. why our iceberg has a flat top. And um, I think, I guess they're more stable that way. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, but, it, yeah. we, we had some, uh, Barton from our, our docs team was just like, he, he immediately sent us this as soon as he saw this, uh, this graphic. And so we had to, we had to poke a little bit of fun at it and play the simulation game. So we are now on a, uh, on a very well supported, uh, uh, iceberg that is now your actual logo <laughs> this time so uh so anyways i wanted to point that before we jumped right in and uh and also uh point out that uh the we made this two episodes uh last last week we we covered uh kind of coming to iceberg and, and covering a, a little bit of the internals from a more i guess engineering perspective but uh, we wanted to have you on today, Ryan, to kind of maybe even dig into that that a little bit more, but also talk about more of the story and the back, kind of backstory. So, um, so wh why don't we just, uh, you know, I, my my first question was, you know, I picture 
the 10 years that it took for something, you know, for these table formats to start surfacing like Hootie and Iceberg. And it's just like, we, we really put ourselves through quite a bit of hell before we actually came in and, and somebody actually said, this is enough, you know? And so I, I kind of want to hear, you know, what, what was the, the actual kind of projects that you were on that, that, you know, brought Iceberg to, to the surface and, uh, and then what, uh, what was kind of the, uh, uh, straw that broke the camel's back and you were just like, screw it. I'm, I'm making a table format. <laughs> yeah, and, um, well, so we, I think everyone knew for a really long time that Hive was, you know, just not great. Um, especially in terms of like commits and atomicity, like, I think all the big uh, companies had patterns where like you, you could uh, make changes to your table, but if you wanted them to be atomic, you had to swap whole partitions. Yeah. So I know like Twitter back in the day considered their partitions to be um, immutable. Uh, we did the same thing, but you could like swap them for new ones. And like, that was just really, really annoying. And we knew that for a, a long time. I think everyone was just sort of putting off uh, work in, in that area. Mm -hmm. But that, so the, the main problem was when I moved over to Netflix is that uh, everything was 10 times worse with S3. So the window of time when a hive table could be incorrect in HDFS is, you know, kind of narrow because you're doing a whole bunch of operations on the name node one after another. Mm -hmm. um, in S3, that time is no, not only like uh, your, your latencies are 10x, uh, you're also contending with um, listings that might not be consistent. And yep. so like we just hit all of those problems at once a lot harder. And when uh, you when you say listings, let's uh, maybe somebody's not as familiar with like so you're talking about the file listings in like a directory kind of hive hive stores things at a directory level and every single time you do a read, you're you're needing to list out uh, a whole directory, right versus just a file. That's exactly it. So, okay. you know, the evolution of Hive tables was, hey, we're putting stuff in a directory and it's not quite scaling to let's use multiple directories and try and figure out from the names which ones we should use to <laughs> scan. And then it was uh, listing directories and, you know, going and finding out what there is, uh, is not scaling. So let's put those in a database. And that's kind of where it stopped. Yeah. Um, so you have a database of directories and then you have um, a whole bunch of directories you need to go list and to get the files. Yeah. Um, so that was very painful for us. And what is ice? So iceberg, and we kind of talked about this last week, but for anybody who's just tuning in, like, you know, what, what does iceberg do in, 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 uh, in contrast? Well, so instead of uh, storing state in two places, the fi a file system, which is not transactional. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, clearly, uh, especially if you're on S3 or, if you were. Um, and then uh, in a database, what we do is we use all the formats that we've we've built up for fast data scans, and we keep a, a persistent tree structure that describes all of the files in the table. Um, and so that's a lot better because with each file, you can uh, store additional metadata. So like, uh, you know, your ID columns, min and max for every data file. So you can pretty easily see, like, if you're looking for a certain ID, it is or is not in a data file. Yeah. Um, so we improved on it there. Um, and, and so, like, we have these lists of basically data files uh, called manifests, and yeah. we manage a whole bunch of those, um, adding or subtracting manifests and rewriting them in order to uh, have this tree of all different versions of your table in parallel. Very cool. 
So, so, okay. So when, what was, what did it, did it take like a lot of work to like, you know, say, Hey, I'm putting my, like the stake in the ground. Like we need to actually solve this problem. Uh, did you have, like, did you have to do a lot of convincing at Netflix to say, this is going to be a, I mean, cause this is a lot of work. <laughs> this is not like, okay, we're going to, I mean, it's, it's up for a company like maybe, you know, Netflix to, to handle something like this, but this is, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe is it three years or four years now in the making? Um, yeah, I want to say like four years almost. Yeah. I think I started August 2017, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so you started, you started and pretty much immediately decided like this has to go open source, this has to go into Apache, and, or like, or did you like do this as a Skunkworks project internal first and then tipped it over? Or how, so how? we we did this internally first, uh, got it working, basically got it to uh, you know where we were pretty happy with. Uh, this as a concept, you know, because we weren't really sure that it would actually be faster planning queries and that, you know, we'd be able to pull it off essentially. Um, the metadata for a, a given table is actually huge. And there's a reason why um, everyone tried to attack, attack this problem by scaling the Metastore and fixing the Metastore, um, which was actually one thing that we were also contending with. And one of the uh, convincing arguments was the ability to basically, um, because all of the job planning is and work is done in the cluster, it's distributed, it's not managed by the Metastore, you're making a lot lighter weight Metastore that just has to track a pointer to a, a table location. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, the, the work is distributed amongst all the Spark drivers or Presto coordinators, uh, rather than putting it all on your central Metastore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like, it, Anyway, we, we used to attack the problem by trying to scale up the Metastore, and that, I think, was uh, one of the primary distractions why we, we didn't uh, end up doing this um, before. So, so from, from discussing this last time, I understood that basically the Metastore is still needed, but it's, like, super shallow. So do you foresee that, like, you're actually going to get rid of the need to have the Hive Metastore by default and have some sort of other even lighter way. Like literally it's like one table you're using or so, right? So um, yeah, you foresee exactly. this being some other structure that's even lighter and like also less pain to like start up and like, like, like run as a server. So I, I think that there is a lot of potential for doing that. Like you could literally just run a, a machine that has, you know, some, uh, directory of files and, and keeps track of it without a database. All it has to do is is basically lock and do this um, swap operation so that you get a linear history of versions. Mm -hmm. um, we actually think that there is going to be a lot more innovation here, and that's why we designed the APIs inside of Iceberg the way we did. So you basically have uh, an API that is give me the latest table metadata or swap this table metadata for new table metadata. And those are just objects so that you can uh, use the, the system that we've uh, provided and, and use like the root JSON files, or you could plug in a database there. Um, I think that there's a, a you know, pretty rich space of ideas here. Um, but what we wanted to do was make this something uh, where people could bring their own Metastore and really like uh, customize this because we knew that no one was going to agree on a scalable Metastore layer and how to integrate both hive tables and iceberg tables and like this was just something that we didn't want to have to you know solve for the world and for every tech company ahead of time so we made it super easy to plug something else in 
because we, we wanted to work with other people. You know, this is a, a layer where we want convergence because no one benefits from having their own formats or, or anything like that. It's like a file format where if we all work together, um, we can really make this amazing and, and uh, feature rich. And I think that that's kind of what we're seeing where you can have, um, you know, we're talking about secondary indexes in the iceberg format, uh, Delta files and, and things like that. Um, and I don't think that we would have gotten there if it weren't for having a, an open base and a, a broad community. So that's yeah. why we were, we were targeting that from the start. Very cool. Yeah, we, we noticed that too. I mean, like having a, a large community and uh, of ideas and stuff flowing into Trino or the connectors we're getting and stuff like that, it's not possible to do this on your own. Like, and it's it's great to 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 hear that your community is also like very much thinking in that way. So so where where, where does it sit now though? Like. What's the common usage now is most people still use a normal Hive Meta store and, and have Hive, have iceberg underneath or? Well, so it, it kind of depends on what normal is. Kind of like <laughs> you guys with the success uh, of a connector, like you don't get much data back. Um, I think we're kind of the same way where, you know, we, we talk to companies that are using it like, uh, you know, Apple and, and Adobe and, and you know, contributors, um, but, it, I don't know how many people are just using the Hive Metastore stuff out of the box. Mm -hmm. uh, I would love to, to get to know that better and like shake some people and say, stop using the Hive Metastore. We can do so much better. <laughs> <laughs> we, let's all work together on this. Um, so we don't really know how many people are, are using it outside of like large tech companies. Um, it could be a ton. Uh, it might not be. Uh, we do support the Hive Metastore out of the box, as well as uh, Glue now. Um, there's a, a locking uh, Glue catalog, um, Nessie, uh, if you're into experimental catalogs. And we're also reviewing a PR for just a plain JDBC connector catalog. Um, okay, you so you could fire it into any JDBC file database. Yeah. And like oh. I said, I think most large tech companies have a distributed Metastore. Like Netflix, at least, has turned the Metastore into a distributed service. We run the thrift API and like, you know, proxy and, and do a lot of tricks there. And so um, we okay. knew that this was an area where people needed to be able to plug in their own things. Um, mm. And that's why it's well documented how to do it. And um, yeah, so I'm hoping that next, maybe we can figure out uh, as a community, how do we want to track this data uh, to get better or richer interaction there? Cool. So you mentioned uh, big users, obviously you are at Netflix, you mentioned Adobe, I think, and Apple. Are there some other ones you can tell us that like, like th that you're aware of that are in your community? Like how, how large is your community A of users and A of contributors? Right? Like, yeah. yeah, so we have a few large tech companies like the three you mentioned, um, LinkedIn, uh, Airbnb, Expedia have also contributed uh, significantly. I think Airbnb has like one or two committers. Um, and uh, PMC members, uh, Salesforce, because uh, uh, someone from LinkedIn moved to Salesforce, so they've got a, a PMC member. Nice. Um, then we, we've also got uh, contributions from a, a large uh, set of companies as well. I've seen someone from eBay, I've seen uh, people from Airbnb, uh, I think I, oh, Stripe. Um, I'm always leaving companies out, so I- I thought I, I saw Apple uh, giving a talk on Iceberg at least, so I'm pretty, they, they may be in I the loop. Apple. <laughs> Apple's a huge contributor. <laughs> um, yeah, so Anton over at Apple and, and Russell as well, um, 
they they contribute a lot so cool um, they've been working with us on some of the row level plans in spark so merge into delete from uh that actually rewrite whole data files instead of just trying to add or remove data files themselves mm. um, and then they've also been really uh instrumental particularly russell working on actions um so you can in most cases like maintain tables uh from a single node but if you're looking at really large tables and you want it to go quickly uh, parallelizing that work uh is is really beneficial so apple has been contributing actions that basically use spark under the hood to do that mm. um, and then also what's really cool is taking those actions and then repackaging them as uh stored procedures so you can uh, call like you know expire snapshots on this table and have a, a parallel action equal wow. to to maintain your table. So really great contributions from Apple. I am so sorry that I left them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just the only reason I I had seen them uh, a talk of theirs uh, is when I, you know when you're trying to iceberg still uh, getting you know new on the kind of like a, a, a awareness phase you know and so i see a bunch of talks from you and i google it and then like I, I did happen to catch this this like one apple talk that was very good in detail so i figured yeah. they, they they had a lot to do with it as well <laughs> it's really so, so, to have a community like this yeah um, i'm i'm super happy about it like this is what we need uh one thing that we wanted was this to be like really community-led um and and for everyone to feel like they they own the format because this is your data right um, you can, you can uh, switch processing, you know, flavors and, and ETL patterns, um, but your data is going to live for a very, very long time. So we, it's very important that it's open, well specified, and truly owned by the community. I'd, I'd like to get into a little more too when we're talking community. Like, uh, you know, so what at what point did uh, Trino like kind of catch wind of Iceberg, and when did we get involved? This is kind of more geared towards David, but also kind of. But for both for both of you, I guess. Uh, but David, do you want to take a stab at like what what was uh, when did you hear about Iceberg and kind of uh, how did we kind of start getting uh, involved? So I first heard about it at a meetup at uh, Facebook. Um, I think it was in early 2018, if Ryan remembers. Um, and then it, it was just uh, like a, a presentation. I, I guess like the code was there, but we didn't have any. Uh, Presto integration. And then eventually, um, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot his name at, at, at Netflix. Um, Parth? Put a Parth, Parth yeah. yeah. Put up a PR for, uh, for uh, Presto support. Um, and I actually ended up working with him quite a bit on uh, getting that integrated and getting it uh, like usable by the broad community. And then um, we did a bunch of follow up work. Um, to actually like make sure that there were full integration tests, that everything was covered, that the, the reading and the writing paths were really solid, um, and that we were confident that when we were writing iceberg data, that it was actually correct. Like one of the things we did was have a integration test where we'd read and write both like in Trino and Spark, and we'd verify against each other because writing data incorrectly is like and losing people's data or corrupting it silently is like the worst thing you can do. So we, we spent a, a lot of time on that before that we were confident to tell people like, this is something you can use in production. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we, we are very serious about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah. So we always had a, a Presto connector. We started developing that in parallel um, and tried to get it out in the community as soon as we could, because we, uh, we realized that 
like Presto and Neutrino uh, is a, a huge part of people's data stacks. I mean, certainly a, a huge part of ours. Yeah. And so we <laughs> definitely uh, wanted to, to make sure that that support was there from the beginning. And I, I know that it's improved quite a bit um, since the, the early days, uh, adding metadata tables and things these days, uh, which are you know, pretty, pretty useful, uh, which let me explain what I mean. Um, metadata tables are basically exposing Iceberg's metadata tree or different parts of it as tables themselves in the engine. So you can query um, your table, uh, I think dollar sign files yeah. And um, in Presto or Trino, and it'll give you all of the metadata that we have on files as though it's a table. So if you want to find out like when files were added, or uh, I guess not when files were added, but um, what data files are out there, uh, what partitions are they in, and things like that, uh, yeah, you can you can go interact with it that way. And we've actually found that very very useful for our ETL patterns. So rather than having um, two separate ETL things that one of them goes and talks to the Metastore and then runs another ETL uh, job. Uh, you can actually write all of that in the same artifact. You, you just you know, query your metadata tables and then use that to affect the, the job that you're running on your, your uh, data. Cool. So, so it seems like it's a very common setup to have uh, Iceberg with Spark and Trino and then some ETL and other systems around it, basically. Yeah, yeah, it is for us at least. I, and I think pretty much everyone we work with, <laughs> Trino and, and Spark is the, the two main engines. So one thing I'm curious to know, like I think a lot of people when they're, when they're we're hearing all these different table formats emerging, right? And so uh, I'm just curious, you know, like kind of from your experience, like what is the thing that kind of makes Iceberg stand out and shine, uh, you know, and, and, and why, why are a lot of people kind of moving more towards Iceberg? And I think this can be for both. I'll start, I'll start with you, Ryan, and then uh, I'll, I'll get, let's get David's take on that as well once you're done. So I think Iceberg does two things uh, pretty well. Um, the first is, is community. We've always, uh, uh, it's very important to me that this is something that can be a successor to the Hive uh, table format. That's necessary just because we want everything operating on the same data, just like with Hive, only we don't want the format to have awkward limitations. Um, so we've done, you know, uh, we've focused on community from the very beginning uh, with the spec, with uh, being a very welcoming Apache community, making sure that, you know, a foundation owns the code and not uh, Netflix or uh, someone else. Um, and, and also like making sure that it, it runs like an Apache community. So I, I think that um, in terms of like open, safe, reliable uh, <laughs> you know, community yeah. for the, the code that manages your data, um, we've, you know, we've distinguished ourselves there. Yeah. Um, the, the other area is I think similar in that I think of Iceberg as uh, forward-looking instead of backward-looking. Um, so Iceberg, when we realized that we needed to fix all these atomicity problems that the hive tables were having, uh, we said, hey, we're going to be ripping out like basically the lowest layer in all of our, our data products. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If we're doing this, let's do it right. Yeah. And so we fixed a lot of things like schema evolution and uh, table evolution. So you basically have a logical view of your data, and then there's a, a physical 
uh, layout of the data files, but those two things are separate. So you can mm -hmm. change the physical layout without changing your logical queries, which you couldn't do in, in Hive. So we yeah. fixed a lot of those uh, persistent problems that needed to be designed well, um, rather than, uh, uh, and this is the distinction between forward looking and backward looking, we wanted to do that for the next 10 years, rather than saying, uh, we have all these things that we need to just immediately work with this format. So we broke compatibility with the Hive table format purposefully so that we could fix a lot of these issues. Um, the you know other formats, as, as I understand them, and I'm not an expert on the other formats, um, but they tried to maintain compatibility so that you can uh, easily go between uh, Hive and the other tables. The problem there is you still end up with problems like a user drops the file in a directory. Should that file be part of your table? I mean, mm. if you want it to be, then uh, you <laughs> that that presents a, a huge number of problems because how do you maintain like a materialized view or a secondary index if users can just drop files in random locations yeah. and that's supposed to be part of your table? Yeah, you don't yeah. know when those things happen. Yep. Um, and then on the other hand, like if it's not supposed to be part of it, you've just broken compatibility with Hive, which you said you maintained. So like if you look backwards and, and try to um, maintain those those Hive concepts and constructs, then you're, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. And I think Iceberg has done well um, trying to maintain what we can, but really like knowing where we need to break compatibility and not being afraid of doing it. That's an interesting philosophy too. Yeah. Because it, there's, there's always this, uh, this in, in any engineering thing is like, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But then it's like, but everybody's kind of idea of what, what does broken mean? You know, it's like, it's kind of broken. And so, uh, you know, where, where do you just, where do you draw the sand in the line and say, this is broken enough where I think we need to fix it. <laughs> you know, so for us, those were things that um, were persistent problems for our, our end users. Yeah. Um, in the Hadoop ecosystem in general, um, I think that we put way, way too much on data engineers um, because yeah. we were all excited about it in the early days. We were like, hey, we can you know write code and control our own data and, yeah. and we have all this control. But now we've we've gotten to a point where we still say oh too many files that's the data engineering problem yeah uh you know uh, oh you you want to prepare your data so that the database can can read it easily like uh take advantage of icebergs tree pattern and and uh make it real easy to do point lookups oh you need to know how trino is going to perform that query and what iceberg metadata and basically sort your data ahead of time like why are these things data engineering problems? So we really, you know, one of our, our central tenets is usability. Um, we want to take care of those problems that were persistently hurting our data engineers because um, like schema evolution is a perfect example. Uh, data engineer comes and renames a, a column in the Hive Metastore, writes some data, then finds out Trino can't read it because the Hive Metastore doesn't track former names for columns. Mm -hmm. So like uh, all of a sudden they accidentally dropped a column and added a new column on that rename. Yeah. Well, now they've got data written in both formats. So how do we fix it? You know, this is a data engineer's week where yeah. they screwed something up by running a DDL command and then they've got to spend all their time fixing it. And then they come back and they're like, 
why did you guys let me do that? And we're like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, it's kind of a data engineering problem. <laughs> That's why we- Why did these. you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, our documentation says don't run rename. Come on, you can rename in C++. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I know so, I've done that before too. That's the, uh, that's the thing is like when we had to, luckily we had backups in Kafka. So we were just able to just revert the change and then just like spit the data out for the, for that. I think it was like a, a half a day that we had that in fraud, but it was just like, oh my God. <laughs> like, so, uh, yeah, these, these things are, I mean, every, I think anybody who's been in data engineering and, and dealt with hive directly, like has, has seen this problem at least, you know, maybe five times, at least enough times to count on, on one hand or maybe two. <laughs> and that's not even the worst one. So the, the table evolution thing, right? So you have a, a brand new data engineer coming from say a Teradata or a, a Vertica background. Uh, they're perfectly happy using Presto for everything, which is great. Uh, we help them set up a pipeline, uh, but they get their table DDL wrong and they don't know about partitioning the first time. Mm -hmm. And so, everything works great for a month and then they realize oh my my queries are running really really slowly how do mm -hmm. i fix this oh well the answer is you create a new table load all of the data into that table yeah. uh then you write rewrite all of the queries because your queries have to know about partitioning yep. in hive tables and then point them all at the new table oh and if you want to you can rename at the end uh to move it back but you'd have to rewrite the queries again and it, well, I, unless you're using DBT, but like those sorts of migrations that takes several weeks, especially if it's, you know, a year down the line and you need to go from daily to hourly partitioning or something like that. Yeah. And so that's why like having that logical physical separation um, that I was alluding to earlier, like it's super important to have these things. And I think that being forward looking is going to save uh, data engineers a ton of time. And I realized I, uh, so David, you know, did you have anything to add to that? Like, I, I realized that we, we got really into Ryan's answer and just kept going on that. I mean, was there anything else from your perspective, like us coming from like the readers and, and users of, of Iceberg, you know, uh, that you could add to that or, or is that pretty much? Well, so as a database guy, like I love the immutable snapshot model, like that you get atomicity um, mm. and I, like, and I, as an implementer, I love like the strong specification. Uh, but Ryan nailed the two things like for users is like the schema evolution and the hidden partitioning. Like you're just like, those are the number one things that people always run into in Hive. For sure. And schema evolution, um, we ran into that at, at Facebook all the time and you, you users work around it. Like a very common pattern was like, was a table would have a few top level columns and then we have a big JSON blob. And people did that because it was just too hard to make changes to the table schema. So yeah, just throw all your stuff in JSON. You never have to touch DDL. You never have to touch the systems that are ingesting the data, but then, well, how do you query it? You've got to know what's inside of there. Yeah. You can't just describe the table. Your queries are super expensive because parsing JSON is a, uh, is a uh, very CPU intensive. Uh, it takes lots more IO because you've got to read the entire JSON blob instead of just the columns you wanted to pick out. Like, so making the making the format more efficient um, and uh, work for users so that users can just use it easily and uh, have it come out efficient is is a huge win. For sure. I, I would add to that uh, things that we haven't covered but are along the same lines. 
uh, making sure we got types right, you know, having decimal. <laughs> Um, and then, well, I mean, it's, as right as any database and ends up getting them in the end, uh, but also uh, nested types. So you can evolve types, you know, a struct within a map, uh, for example, and, and things like that, that I think really, really help. Um, yeah, so you, it's not just at that top level, you can add or remove columns, but you can rearrange, you can go into to, uh, substructs and, and move things around. So you can actually model the data however is natural for a data engineer yeah. rather than resorting to that JSON. Yeah. Um, and you can do that across whatever data format, uh, well-specified data format you want. Um, I know it's yeah, so, so the keyword specified came up again, and I think that's a that's a core benefit. I think that at least enables the integration with with Trina quite a bit. I mean, David can tell us more about that, but I think the fact that you have a spec that goes into that depth of data types and all that kind of stuff, that's extremely useful for anyone the who needs to interface with the system and um, implement sort of like interactions with it, which obviously we have done in the Trina community. I'm just curious what led you down that idea of having that spec and then what's your experience now that you have it in terms of like are there other people that want to like implement towards that spec and where has it been used already like that kind of aspect and how much does it evolve like that would be really interesting i think so i think it's really important to keep uh this as a spec and a reference implementation um we internally do have um uh, reads and writes uh, in Python written, and we're working on getting that external. Um, the, the challenge there is that Python doesn't really have um, a, a common framework for a lot of things like we do from the Hadoop community. So Hadoop, you know, we, we have Spark. And so like it, that made sense for us to uh, excuse me, in integrate on. Um, in the Python side, you've got like pandas, which can't represent all the types and a newer arrow, um, but that doesn't have like some of the interaction that you're looking for. And so it's kind of hard to determine, like if you read a table from Python, what do we produce? Um, you know, so we, we have some internal tools that, that work with it, but um, anyway, that, that's the challenge on the Python side. We are doing a Python implementation. We think of it that it's really important for this to be something that can be implemented. Um, I worked on Parquet for a really long time, and that was great there because we had people, you know, Python was one of the earliest ones, but a Rust implementation came up. Um, we just want this to be something that is not locked into uh, the, the JVM uh, and Hadoop communities. Um, there's no reason why you can't use this for a, a variety of use cases that have nothing to do with um, the Hadoop ecosystem. Right? This is a, a at-rest format that has rich features for storing data as tables. Um, you should be able to do that anywhere. <laughs> um, so like we have people that are writing um, like logging applications. So from all of our runtime systems, we collect the logs, uh, send them off. We have a, a system for crunching them down and putting them into Parquet files and committing those to iceberg tables. Um, all of that happens to use Java because we're, you know, we use a lot of Java, but you can imagine like having that use case, wanting to manage your logs and build this system in some other language or framework, and then still, you know, back your dashboard uh, or your, your logging application uh, front end with, with Trino. And, you know, that's what we're doing. So that interoperability, I think is going to be uh, more and more important. 
because you can directly interact with tables through a library uh, and then have you know, a rich SQL experience uh, accessing that data later or a, a rich experience with like data frames if you need to do uh, model training and things in Spark. So what are some long-term goals with the spec actually? Like, do you, is there, so I, I know like technically it's, it says on the site, like, you know, this is still kind of in progress, right? Is there like any, any idea or goal of, of like getting that done or is it just going to be something that's, you know, kind of perpetually evolving and we're just waiting to see when, what, 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 uh, indicates that it's the right time to make this, this is V2 and here's where we stop. Like, are, are there any indicators of saying that's coming up? Yeah. So we actually have V2 milestones. Um, we're about done with the implementations and then it's just a matter of finalizing the documentation in the spec. Um, so the, the, incrementing number is really just a, a compatibility thing. Mm -hmm. um, V2 is, is releasing uh, file deltas. So you'll be able to encode um, uh, deletes against an existing data file. So say rows three and seven, those are deleted, um, which is wow. important for like GDPR use cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, we know that V1 has to be V1 and can't, uh, can't be compatible because a V1 reader has no idea that it needs to merge in deltas against that table. <laughs> so like, you know, you, you have to um, break compatibility at, at those events. Um, we're also using that as a, a way to get in um, new requirements. So if you're writing a V2 table, you need to write the, uh, the list of partition specs that are in this table, not just a single one that applies to the table. Um, things that we've evolved in the spec in a, a backward compatible way in the past. So um, yeah, those are really like uh, compatibility changes uh, where we need to cut a new version number. Um, we then you can manually update your table or you know somehow update your table to V2 in order to enable those things and start writing the the new metadata. Got it. Um, we have a pretty strict compatibility policy, right? Everything is backward compatible. Um, and within a version number for the spec, uh, we, we uh, guarantee forward compatibility. So the first reader where you're using, where we've said, say iceberg 0.12 um, is compatible with the V2 spec, 0.12 will always be able to correctly read that data uh, in, in V2. Um, no matter what we change about it in the future, if you're running a V2 or a V1 table, we guarantee that that version is going to be um, correctly reading um, the, the data. So, you know, we, we really want this again to be something that we can evolve over time um, with those guarantees to help you reason about um, the different versions of the spec. Gotcha. Is NV, if, would V3, so if, if you're on V1, you're, you can't make two jumps, right? You're saying it's just the, the immediate uh, forward or it's uh, totally like if, I, if you come out with a V3, they, are you concerned about forward compatibility from V1 to V3 or is it just per? No, like... so V1 can only read V1. V2 okay. can read one and two okay. and, and so on. I see. You always have backward compatibility so you can read the older versions. Um, and in fact, like all metadata for older versions is still valid. Um, we have rules for updating it for the new version. Okay. So for example, uh, V1 doesn't have sequence numbers, which keep track of when deletes happen in time. Okay. Uh, V2 does. Uh, so if you're reading V1 metadata, 
in a V2 table, you say, oh, I know that everything in V1 had sequence number zero, for instance. Um, but yeah, there, there's no forward compatibility outside of versions. Okay. So you can't read a, a future version with older readers um, or else you, you are no longer guaranteed correctness, yep. which yep. is kind of big. Yeah, <laughs> got it. Um, cool. Uh, there was one, uh, another question I had was, which was, uh, from the time that you had started iceberg, uh, were there any like kind of really interesting features that you wouldn't, wouldn't have anticipated that, uh, or kind of interesting use cases, I guess, uh, for iceberg or has it been pretty like clear cut? Oh, people have been doing pretty amazing things with this. Um, <laughs> one of the, the things that I, I think is pretty cool is our, our logging uh, team that I mentioned earlier, uh, building their system for aggregating and, and writing logs into tables, and then um, using Iceberg to basically seamlessly uh, expose those logs to people um, in a, a you know feature-rich UI. I, I think that surprised me um, that we have this fairly tight integration between an infrastructure component and uh, tables, right? Yeah. They just produce table data and then they can write everything on top of a, a Trino database, which is or Presto for us, but like, that's pretty awesome. Nice. Uh, we also had a couple of use cases that I thought were very surprising in that um, iceberg metadata I, I described as a persistent tree. So you keep cha making changes on the edges of the tree as you write new snapshots. Um, it also forms because we keep track of, uh, at every layer of this tree information about what's stored in it. Um, you can quickly navigate it. So this helps with job planning. So if I'm looking at a manifest of data files, uh, I know the partitions those data files are in, cause I have a, a tuple of partition information. Yep. And I also know like min max stats for their columns so that I can prune out files quickly. Yep. I can do the same thing at the manifest level. So I have a list of all the manifests that make up some version. And I know the uh, basically ranges of partitions in those manifests. Um, so it forms a course index over the entire tree structure, which means if you have just one dimension, you want to look up data through, um, you could get really great performance, like surprisingly fast performance. Yeah. Um, so where I'm going with this is we were able to shut down an Elasticsearch cluster, not because Elasticsearch isn't amazing in itself, right? Yeah. Um, it was because we only needed to search on this data in a single dimension. We were always looking up some specific ID yeah. and we didn't need a, a live cluster running that data, uh, you know, running constantly with that data. Um, Especially because, with all those memory requirements. <laughs> yeah, like the size of the data made it expensive and we could only keep two days. Yeah. We changed that to an iceberg table. The data is stored in S3 at rest, like nothing, no infrastructure is needed to maintain it. Um, and then the only thing that that required was uh, making sure that as data was written, uh, instead of being grouped by time, just naturally by the rights, uh, we rewrote the metadata and pivoted it to be uh, grouped by that ID. So we bucketed the table by the ID and then we uh, made sure that manifests only covered a certain range of IDs. So that turned the, the table you know, rough index into something that Trino could use to really, really quickly zoom in on information. And we were having uh, basically the, the same um, performance with data at rest in S3 with a dynamically scaling Preston cluster um, that we had with a really 
huge Elasticsearch index. So you're saying uh, again, that like, Iceberg is as, as fast as uh, all these in-memory databases? <laughs> no, yeah, kidding. I mean, it, it was like, I think our requirement was uh, like two to five seconds. Uh, well, I guess that really means less than five seconds uh, to load all this data. And because our, our cluster was so large, like we were, it was taking that amount of time, I think, in, in Elasticsearch as well. Um, and so like, again, like the, the use case was we only had one dimension we were querying on. Otherwise you'd still have to do a huge scan and like Trino can do that, but it's not gonna be that quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it was uh, pretty amazing to, to save that much money on this. Yeah. Um, the other thing, I, I'm gonna give one more example because I, I like these. Yeah, me um, too. We used to have a lot of infrastructure for taking data from Kafka and putting it into uh, parquet tables. And that had several stages uh, because you needed to do these partition swaps. And we had something where we'd create false tables and those had like 10 minute partitions. And then we'd like have some like special applications swap the 10 minute partitions for the hour partitions. And like, it was weird. Um, at the end of that, we had a compaction process. And so no one really got any data until after the compaction process finished when all of the hour was complete. So we'd have to wait until the end of the hour, compact it, and then people could read the data um, to get real parquet data. Now with Iceberg, we kind of get the best of both worlds because you can append data uh, anywhere in the table without worrying, uh, you know, is this gonna be an atomic operation? We have far less infrastructure um, we get exactly one semantics and more importantly, we commit directly to the table. So the data is immediately available within like five minutes, uh, to query. Then what we do is, uh, instead of doing that rewrite at the end, we have a, a system that picks it up from the remote AWS regions and moves it to the region where we do our processing. So although the data is immediately available, if you wait, say 20 minutes, uh, to give that process time to move the data, then the reads are a whole lot cheaper. So we just put a 20 minute lag on uh, kicking off uh, our, our, uh, our ETL on the data. And all of a sudden we've got like way better availability for uh, queries that are just trying to get the latest. Um, we've got basically the same, um, the same uh, overall picture, like you know, you you get your your data eventually in parquet format, uh, in the correct region, uh, but that latency is down to twenty minutes, and overall the cost of maintaining this system that would do the partition swapping and stuff like that is gone because we don't we don't have to run that service anymore. We just have Flink writing directly to a table uh, with our Metastore. So like. There are some pretty cool things that we've been able to do. Really? Yeah, that is awesome. <laughs> it's like that, by the way, the Flink committer that uh, is in the Iceberg project now, that is uh, based on our committer. So you get the same feature set. Um, it, it's pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, Ryan, that was awesome. Like, seriously, this is, this is some really cool stuff. Uh, I, I am, I am so thrilled. Like I've been, so I've been digging in pretty heavily to Iceberg, I think like the last, uh, almost month now. 
And like now just even hearing you talk about, I mean, these specific use cases of, of how you've literally like chopped ETL times into, you know, a third of the original time. It's, it's crazy. Um, it's crazy what, what, what the possibilities are here. Uh, not only just from, you know, like a, a, a technical perspective, but then like a time-saving perspective for your engineering team in terms of what problems people are focusing on. Uh, that's, that's just huge. And now you can actually go back to kind of your original job, you know? <laughs> can, I, can I give you one more? Go for it. Dude, go for it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, we, we've got data flowing through Kafka, right? And we actually have a, a Flink infrastructure built out so that you can process data um, in streaming. So okay. uh, basically Kafka to Flink to Kafka uh, or something like that. That is awkward for our users um, because for our Kafka clusters, we only have six hours of retention. So um, basically that means if anything goes wrong with your job, and this is like data engineer, you know, user job, if anything goes wrong with it, you fix it in six hours or you lose data. Mm -hmm. um, or you, you wake up someone on platform and you say, hey, is this on a cluster that happens to have more space? And can we like, it's a big deal. You're waking up a lot of people yep. potentially. Yeah. Um, and you've got six hours to either fix it or, you know, figure out how you're going to make that data last longer. Um, so what we've uh, been toying with, and I think you can do this with the, the latest uh, open source release with Flink, is instead of putting Kafka in between these streaming jobs, put iceberg tables. So you can stream data into an iceberg table there you're not limited by uh, the size of your Kafka cluster and, and how, how many instances you want to, to store data in. You're only limited by how much space you're willing to spend in S3. And so then you can also consume incrementally out of those tables. So every append from the first Flink job can be a, a, you know, an input to either a Spark streaming or, um, or a, a Flink application. And you know, Flink will actually read that out and you can do Flink SQL and, and manipulate it that way. So we think this is actually a really great way to have streaming infrastructure rather than batch infrastructure. Wow. Um, because it's, you know, your streaming job is constantly running. So it means something that you don't have to schedule and, and maintain and have you know, deal with failures and retries and, and things like that. And you could and still you can kind of still, like basically you're just dumping things into those tables and you keep dumping them and you still at the later stage can clean them up when you don't want them anymore. But your time window restriction disappears, right? Exactly. Your only time window restriction is from how long you want to keep snapshots in that table. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. our typical um, window for snapshots is seven days and you can you know extend that as long as you want. Yeah, uh, it's, it's just really storage just space at that stage, right? Exactly. Like, it's how much you want to spend on S3 rather than EC2 instances. The other thing I wanted to ask you before is with when you're talking about those logging dashboards and in general, all those use cases, um, I kind of hear it like Im implicitly, but I think um, I wanted to just like get that confirmed from you. Most of the things then end up happening to be queried with SQL, either via Trino or via like Spark or whatever, like some sort of tool. And then you can use the, the generic dashboarding tools and all those things that are powered on SQL, right? Like, is that what's happening for you? I, I think, yeah, we're using SQL um, to query the data. I don't know that we're using a generic dashboarding solution for, for this, um, because I think we're, we want to craft the queries in a way that we're, you know, uh, a bit more confident they're going to be quick. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I think that we also do some merging of data from the systems that are batching log data up. So as the, the log data comes in, uh, if you want that immediately available, like within seconds, um, you don't want to commit it to the iceberg table within seconds. You want to um, you know, have some secondary channel to get that to the, the user. So I think there, there's a lot more complexity there, but the vast majority of these use cases are being driven by uh, SQL queries. And I think that that's really where we need to go as a, an industry. Um, I used to love the control and everything that we have over uh, writing my own ETL pipelines and like, I can do anything I want in MapReduce. Um, the, the problem though, is you end up with compiled artifacts that you have to maintain code for. You have to maintain, uh, you know, if you want it to work faster, you've got to do it. It's got to be compiled against a, an API that is specific. Like, it is so much harder to maintain a Java or Scala artifact compared to SQL, where I, as a data platform person now, and not a data engineer or, or someone writing those jobs, uh, can improve all the jobs by fixing the optimizer or, uh, you know, uh, vectorizing something in the, the read path. Like, um, I really think that SQL is uh, the right way to go um, for maintaining uh, pipelines and, and applications. I agree. I'm sure you guys probably agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Anti-SQL supporters over here as well. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, we're, we're getting a little low on time, so I want to move on to our next spot. But, but Ryan, I could literally sit here and listen to you talk about all these different use cases and scenarios all day. And uh, we're, uh, real quick, before we hop on to the next thing, uh, how can people get involved with, with Iceberg and, and kind of uh, what, uh, what are some ways that uh, uh, people can either get in touch with you or, or kind of find you uh, stuff that you're doing in terms of talks and things like that? And let you know that they're using Iceberg and loving it, of As course. well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I'm blue at Apache.org. If you need help, uh, feel free to, to reach out probably to the iceberg dev community first. Um, but you know, if, if you want to talk to me specifically, I'm, I'm always up for that. Um, so dev at iceberg.apache.org is like the, the main mailing list. We also do everything through GitHub, uh, just to make, make it easy. Um, so open issues or pull requests, uh, and everything is there. Um, including the spec, you can make pull requests against that. Cool. Um, there, we also use ASF Slack uh, if you'd like to, to join us there. So we, we love having new community members. Uh, yeah, please reach out and let us know what you're doing. Yeah. ASF, for those that don't oh, know, is Apache start. software. Start. Oh, start. sorry. Sorry. We also have a getting started page. Uh, you oh. mentioned like how do people get started testing this yeah. out. Um, it's just a, a pretty easy spark uh i mean it's spark based because i i don't think we have a, a good example for trino maybe we'll work with you guys on that um but you yeah under spark getting started it takes you through the a single command to get you up and running with a local catalog instance that'll run iceberg tables and uh gets you to the point where you've written a little bit of data and can can look at a metadata table so, very cool uh just run that it, it's pretty simple these days well actually i'm about to demo that real fast so uh maybe we'll take this and and uh, eventually merge this into uh the trino getting started uh is this this uh basically a pull request i can do against this uh this web page i'll Absolutely. 
I'll sync with you on that afterwards because uh, uh, I do have a little bit of uh, uh, stuff that um, I've put together that kind of uses Trino specific uh, setup. So I'd uh, like to uh, hop on over right now to the pull request of the week. Uh, this is actually one from uh, one of our maintainers, Prothum. Um, and uh, uh, he, uh, oops, I mean to click on him. <laughs> I meant to, uh, he, he basically uh, um, had this in on uh, 354, our, our previous release. And, and I was, had I known that this was in, I could have used this uh, to actually fix an issue that I had on the last Trino community broadcast. Um, so I, I had kind of showcased uh, the uh, two ways that we can kind of interface with, with Iceberg. One way was this Java API, and uh, this is inside of the Trino getting started uh, area of, uh, of a repository that I'm working on right now to kind of grow out our getting started page. Um, and basically I wanted to kind of, uh, I have two, uh, uh, kind of areas that you can look at. You can basically use the iceberg Java API, or you can, uh, ha I have a, a, basically like a, a little Docker, uh, local setup with, uh, um, Trino and iceberg sitting on top of min.io. So, um, so you can go in and, and start up. I, I have in, in Docker, I have this, um, uh, let me pull up the dashboard. I have... Uh, a couple uh, containers running, basically uh, the Hive Metastore with the database backing it, MinIO, and then we have Trino running on top of that. So, um, so basically, if we uh, we have this local main set up uh, to connect to all of those, um, and uh, here I basically just set up uh, the schema, uh, which in um, in uh, Iceberg nomenclature is just called the namespace, um, and you can do a lot of uh, further nesting of the namespace if you want to, but for this one, we're keeping it easy. So we'll just call it logging going off of the uh, uh, examples on the iceberg site. Uh, we set up the schema. We set up the uh, partition spec. I showed you all this last time. Uh, and the one other new thing that I added here was I uh, changed the right format default to be orc because uh, typically Trino likes to work on the uh, our orc uh, format, but you can also use parquet, which is I think the default in, uh, uh, of uh, iceberg. Um, and then we just create the table. Before here, I had a, a little bit of stuff messing with the snapshot, uh, trying to basically get a dummy snapshot uh, set in here because uh, we had an issue uh, where if we had created a, uh, a table without actually creating a snapshot uh, from the beginning, uh, we would have a failure on read. And so, uh, so very simple little change in here. We basically just, uh, during the git splits, we, we basically just verify and see if the snapshot's empty and then we return a proper uh, tuple here. And then, uh, and then updated the test here. So a uh, simple change, but had a huge impact on terms of what I was trying to get done last week. Uh, and so now we can actually run this. Uh, if we look here, um, let's just, I always like to show min.io before we actually run anything. Uh, we have a, a bucket that we created called iceberg. And so, um, so let's go ahead and run uh, that real fast and create this table. This is basically Java, Java code format of creating a table. And uh, you can do this as well in Trino. Um, let me see if I have a quick create table that I can reference um, for Iceberg. I don't, but I, I can uh, add that to the show notes afterwards. Uh, I'll be adding all, all this code that I'm about to run here uh, um, in a uh, in the show notes as well. So uh, so we basically ran this uh, and we get back, we basically pull out the table and verify and print out a couple things. So. Um, so basically, we should have a table uh, that is stored under logging DB, and the table is called uh, logs. 
So uh, inside here, the, the only thing that's initially written is this JSON uh, metadata, and that's just basically, I believe it's just to store uh, some of the um, information just about the table itself, not about any uh, underlying data, which doesn't exist yet. <laughs> um, so, uh, so you would find things like the schema in there, partition spec, and, thing, and, and so on. Um, and then what we can do, and you can correct me at any point if I get something wrong, Ryan, as I'm explaining this, we should now be able to, from Trino, uh, read from this table and just be able to actually read out the empty table. And this is actually showcasing problems, so we don't have a snapshot actually written yet because we haven't written any data. So uh, we get those fields back correctly. We can actually even show uh, wh uh, what the create table would look like. Actually, why don't we do that? Show create table. And then this will be the way I show you what the create table looks like in, in Trino, uh, in the Trino syntax. So that basically just looks right here. We do see, you'll notice the partitioning on- A bit smaller, Brian. What's that? It's a bit small if you can zoom or whatever. Yeah, um, let me see if there's a, I don't know if there's a way I can zoom on. That's okay, oh. we'll put it in the show notes. We'll put, it, we'll put it in the show notes, yes. So, um, and so basically we get this table back with nothing in it. So why don't we go ahead and insert something into it? We'll go ahead and insert and verify that that comes back. We got a, a, our one row back and now we can actually look to see what gets written here in the metadata. So we have some Avril files. We have a new JSON file, which which basically still, I think, or this one right here, 0001. Uh, and that's uh, um, basically if there's any updates on the um, on the uh, uh, table itself. And then we have a uh, Avril file that uh, is actually our, the one of the manifest files, as well as the snapshot, uh, or I think this is the manifest list. This is the manifest file itself. Is that correct, Ryan? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And then we, we, we've evolved over time. <laughs> uh, and then the, uh, then the actual data itself is stored underneath a part partition as expected. We, we have the event time per hour and the level uh, equals error. And this, this kind of somewhat mirrors what we would have seen in Hive, you know, where we, things are still stored in, in these kind of paths. But uh, the, the metadata, the difference here is that the metadata itself is pointing directly at this, this particular file versus this directory sitting above of it. So that, that's the one thing I want to make clear to, to folks that are seeing this and saying, this looks like exactly like what Hive did. <laughs> um, so, so now let's uh, go ahead and uh, look at the snapshots. And you can do this in Trino by just uh, specifying the table. You have to actually put the quotations around it and, and specify the table name, dollar sign, and then say snapshots. And this is what Ryan was referring to earlier to uh, kind of tap into that. So what this does is it actually pulls out the metadata from those Avril files uh, and, and kind of tells you uh, what snapshot. So this is the actual snapshot ID. This is when we actually uh, wrote it, uh, what the operation that was performed with this. So we actually appended data. So why don't we go ahead and um, insert a couple more values in here. Um, hopefully I make sure I include everything. Okay, so we've inserted three more rows, and of course, if we pull that out, we should expect to see four. Okay, great. And uh, if we look at the snapshots now, we should see a yet another new snapshot. And this one points back to the earlier snapshot that we just did, so that way you know where you're coming from. 
Um, so really cool stuff here. So what if we actually wanted to view the table, uh, this table at uh, a particular, let's say the very first snapshot where we just had that uh, value here. So in Trino, what you do for that is you say the table name, use the at symbol, and then you basically specify the snapshot ID here. And now we can actually read the table at the earlier snapshot, even though if we still read the original table here, we're, we still get all of it, but we, we can basically look at different time, time, you know, is essentially what they call time traveling, where you can look at these old, uh, old, uh, um, uh, time, uh, time stamps or old snapshots of, uh, of your uh, table and, and time. So, uh, so let's do a real fast, uh, overview of like adding a new column. And these were some of the features we were talking about that these are things that were like impossible in hive, totally impossible in hive. So let's go ahead and add a column called severity and we'll add this integer here. So we can do that. And now let's go ahead and show the create table for, well, I'm not going to show the create table because it's too small. Uh, I will show the output of that in the show notes. And now let's just basically pull the table back. And now we have this new column severity. The only thing that's changed is that they're all, all, all of the previous ones were just set to null. And so if we, again, do this snapshot again, we'll notice that no new snapshot was added for adding this column. Uh, that's, I believe, only uh, going to be introduced inside of that JSON file that we showed before. Is that, uh, <laughs> I think that's the thing that happens. <laughs> I, yeah, all, uh, um schema evolution is a metadata operation. Got it. So unlike, I think um, other formats, like you have to rewrite all your metadata, or sorry, rewrite all your data in order to do certain uh, schema evolution operations, mm -hmm. but it's always a metadata operation in Iceberg. Got it. So in that case, yeah, you're not going to have a, you're not going to be able, if you add a column or, or go back, like that's, that's not going to be the, other than the state of your actual data at that time, you're not going to be able to kind of go back to whatever your schema was in this previous change, right? Uh, I mean, you can, you can drop that column again. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. But it wouldn't be something that would be tracked by these, these snapshots. That's only tracking date, data, data and time. That's true. So we are moving to where we're tracking the schema that was current at the time of a snapshot. Okay. Uh, just so that you can uh, time travel back to that point and know that you're seeing the exact same results. Got it. Uh, but we haven't added that yet. Got it. Okay. Um, so uh, so yeah. So I think I do. Uh, yeah. Let's. So now we end do an insert and we add a new value uh, for that severity, um, and then uh, we can now see when we pull the data out. We now have all the rest null, but then this, this new one is uh, severity one. Um, and so that's, uh, that's going to be how you add a, add a new column. Um, Let me ask a quick question about this. Um, and that's probably for David and Ryan. Um, with uh, recent releases of Trino, we are getting update support, like SQL update. Does that mean that theoretically, once we support update in the Iceberg connector, we could go back and update those old records for the new field. Yeah, like that's, that's correct. Yeah, and that's supported in, in Spark as well. Very cool. Awesome. Cool. So, um, let me, uh, I guess let me... I'll have to talk to David Stryker to get that added soon. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool stuff. So now we're going to rename the severity, the severity com, uh, column to priority. And again, this for those that haven't really messed much with Hive before, this may not seem like a huge revelation. <laughs> but if you're if you're somebody who's coming, from, uh, having messed with any Hive uh, tables, like this is 
this is like groundbreaking stuff in terms of like how to, how you manage this stuff and and how this is actually being done on the insides. It's it's really great and um and basically just giving you what you would probably assume should be things that you would need. So um so let, we're gonna go ahead and now that we've renamed this, uh, we named it from severity priority, same fields, but now we just get the uh you know the the value or the field named as priority instead. And so let's go ahead and alter that table to now just drop that column. And, uh, and as we would expect, we, we basically uh, lose that, uh, that, that column's uh, worth of data. And then let's go ahead and show the snapshots. The only thing that was tracked out of all that stuff that we just did by adding and renaming was that one extra append of that new, rec that new row. Uh, that we appended back here with the originally with the severity uh, timestamp, but now that's gone. Um, the other last thing is while you can also read, um, so while you can also read from these uh, uh, snapshots um, and just see you know that particular moment in time, you can also uh, move back to. So let's say we want to get rid of that that new one. Uh, that that new field or uh, row that I just added with the severity field, um, we can you know as you would expect we like I had shown before you can read and just check say hey let me make sure that uh, this is where I want to actually uh, revert back to, and you can actually take that and say okay this is exactly the the timetable that I want to move move my uh, my dates back to so or move my snapshot back to so you can actually permanently um, roll back. Uh, this the system by calling system rollback to snapshot, um, and that's a, a function call that actually enables us to now, if we query the table logs, we now don't see that fifth uh, row in there. Now that doesn't mean that it's permanently deleted. In fact, that snapshot is still there as long as you haven't deleted it yourself. So we could actually move back forward, and I call this one "Back to the Future." <laughs> um, so if we want to move back forward to uh, to this um, to the snapshot, uh, we can actually do the same roll roll back, even though it's rolling forward. <laughs> and again, we can see that uh, that that row that we had. Uh, rolled back and lost is still living there inside that snapshot. Um, and so that's basically it. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to just kind of go through a quick tutorial of how you can uh, take advantage of a lot of that, uh, this capability functionality that um, is, is this really rich functionality. It's almost like a Git level functionality for your files uh, uh, sitting inside of your data lake. So um, awesome. I mean, really awesome project, Ryan. Like, thank you for stepping up as well as the community that sits around this is this is not to, to you as well as the iceberg community at large like thank you all for all the amazing work that you all do and uh, uh and are still doing and continuing through this day it's it's just really incredible uh uh and, and we're hopefully hoping that we can do a lot more and get a lot more involved in uh, uh getting more traction there as well yeah we're really looking forward to i think partnering uh with the trino community because there's a lot that we can do here you yeah know, getting those to update commands done uh, and working is going to be fantastic for our users. Um, it's such a uh, an improvement over the way we've ex been expressing jobs. Yep. Um, again, it, it's going to take a lot of load off of data engineers rather than, uh, oh, read this over here, filter out what I don't need, read this over here, union them together and write. It's just like, oh, okay, just merge. You know, here's here's how to create rows. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's it's much much better. Um, really looking forward to that. Um, 
I think Trino can be a, a you know, wonderful, like first class front end to, to iceberg tables. Totally. Uh, and I'm really excited about the possibilities there. Awesome. Um, have a couple more things that we need to cover uh, from a uh, implementation standpoint. If you need to run, Ryan, I know we're going way over time today, but uh, uh, we... Okay. It always happens, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I pretend like this is not a normal thing, but uh, I, I do want to quickly cover our question of the week. Uh, and this is a, a very fast one, is, uh, and, and one that's become less commonly asked, uh, mainly because we've been doing a lot to fix our test pipelines. But uh, um, this is more to our, uh, our, our contributors that uh, are contributing code a lot, is uh, a lot of times when they're do running the test pipelines, uh, there are failures. We have some tests that can be a little flaky and we've, we've been uh, doing a lot of effort to actually uh, identify those and, and basically uh, take a look and, and take care of those. Uh, we, know we're, we never just like mass ignore tests. You know, we, we need to get to the bottom of why they're failing. But uh, we now have a very streamlined way of, of like uh, actually annotating tests that are flaky so that uh, we, can, we can primarily focus on, on uh, uh, fixing those tests uh, uh, and, and spend a lot of you know, development time into that. And so the test pipeline has gotten better from what I've seen uh, from a, a peripheral point of view. Uh, and so, so this may, this hack hopefully won't be needed as often, but, uh, unfortunately there, the people, there are people that are asking a lot of times, like, can I just, how do I rerun this test pipeline? If it's just, if I get, you know, knocked out by a flaky test. And so one easy one line hack that you can do, uh, to, to update your pull request. If you have a pull request, you, you just need to do this, get commend, uh, get commit amend, uh, no edit and, and then just do, uh, and do a git push dash f. You can you can copy this from our show notes and just basically run this on your uh, on your local forked version. Push that out to your uh, 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 version again, and then basically that will uh, without adding any new you know any new commits or anything like that. It'll basically invoke a new um, a test to be ran. Uh, we can't unfortunately give anybody the ability to run tests themselves, or else they would be uh, getting read uh, access to some of this, and we just we need that to be only the maintainers. So, um, so hopefully you understand that. But this is a pretty easy way to kind of get uh, to kind of I guess kick the kick the um, uh, uh, side of the system to run the tests again. Um, other than that, uh, I would like to see if uh, um, let me see if uh, Rose wants to join. Uh, and uh, before she joins, um, I'm going to um, uh, basically uh, talk about our meetups that are coming up. Uh, so let's see, we have, uh, some inaugural Trino meetups, uh, that's going to be David here, uh, joining me with, along with Martin and Dane and, uh, Eric, uh, the original, uh, band on, the, uh, the Presto group that started at Facebook. Uh, we're all getting together just to kind of update everybody on, uh, what's going on in Trino. Uh, well, you know, obviously we have these, these, uh, 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 setups, but a lot of people don't really like to maybe necessarily hop on Twitch or, or watch YouTube or anything like that. So what we, uh, we want to do is just have a, uh, an inaugural virtual meetup, uh, and we're going to be splitting it up between EMEA, APAC and, uh, and the Americas. Uh, so having different meetups for each of those and, uh, basically just talking about the state of Trino, um, uh, what to expect, what's coming up, uh, a lot of cool things coming up that I won't, uh, I should probably just not give away here, but, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that, uh, April 21st, uh, 5:30 Eastern, uh, time on the America side. Uh, and then you can look up the, you, you'll want to look up the other one. There's a America's one and then there's a, an EMEA one, which is all. Europe and uh, uh, Middle Eastern Asia. And then um, 
And then also the uh, APAC one, which is all uh, pretty much kind of anywhere from India over to uh, Japan. So uh, so looking forward to that. Let's see if uh, Rose is available. She, I see she is. And so let me get her. Uh, Rose, are you, uh, are you available to... Uh, I'm here. Am I still muted? Yeah, the problem... <laughs> the question. Let me see I if mean, I can... I don't need to be seen. That's not <laughs> important. I can just be a floating head goat. We can pretend I'm the bunny. Sounds so good. Let me, here. I'll see if... Here, I think I know what I, what I need to do. I need to uh, open up... Um, I need to open up Zoom here. There we go. And uh, let me... Oh my goodness. I, I cannot, I, I really it live cannot. and I have about two minutes. Yep. Sounds good. Okay. Well go ahead okay. and go ahead and talk to us about write the docs. I'm actually just going to, uh, do the code scene and, and bring up your blog that you wrote here. So wonderfully for Perfect. us. So welcome Rose Williams to the show. <laughs> Hi everybody. I'm Rose. Uh, I'm actually a open source docs enthusiast. Uh, and I do a lot of community organizing for write the docs. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's a global community of people. Um, that care about documentation, especially for open source, because we've seen that uh, documentation when it's, especially when it's good documentation is really core to those communities. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about Writing Day uh, and the Portland Write the Docs conference. So that conference is coming up at the end of the month and Writing Day is the first day of that conference and that is April 25th. And um, Wow, I haven't been on a stream in a while. I apologize. All of my words just. <laughs> uh, writing day is really cool because we get a bunch of open source communities together uh, in one room and we welcome new contributors. And so it's designed to help you onboard new contributors, uh, more specifically writers, uh, but really anybody can join and get them set up and contributing to your community. So Trina is going to be coming out. Um, I'm actually organizing and coordinating that particular event. So I'm hoping that I can pop over to the table a couple of times. Uh, but I will be floating around the entire event. Uh, but I've been working with uh, Manfred and Ryan to uh, set up a filter to filter some good first time issues that are great for docs. Uh, and also we're putting together some issues where we can test the docs and kind of hammer away at them. So if you're interested in coming aboard and helping us with that, uh, there are still tickets available last time I checked. And uh, I also organized some local write the doc stuff. And so if you're curious about writing day or any local uh, organizations in your area, I am totally happy to help. And you can find me on Twitter. Uh, that's the easiest or on the Trino community or on the write the docs community. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Rosa. This is a great way for anybody who's kind of like got the wet feet. They've never really done open source. Uh, and you're not really sure if, especially if like we have a lot of people in the community that like don't know how to write Java or, or things like that. So like, you know, people immediately think of code contributions, but documentation, like, I mean, this is one of the things that I was saying like earlier in the show, like it's uh, getting getting good documentation, getting uh, things very uh, clear and out there and uh, usable for, uh, for anybody who's uh, learning the system, it's huge. And so um, it's a very, very helpful thing and there's not enough of, uh, you know, of us that are uh, working on it. I mean, we always need more people writing good documentation. So uh, really welcome anybody who's been in the project for a while, please join this as well as uh, anybody who is, uh, you know, especially those of you who are new, who are not sure where, where to begin. This is gonna be a nice like uh, low learning curve uh, type of way to, to get into involved in the uh, Trino project. So, uh, so thanks Rose for joining us and telling us about writing day and uh, uh, we'll have all, a lot more about that in the show notes and uh, 
with that, uh, does anybody else have anything they'd like to do in terms of parting thoughts before we, we take off? I just got to jump. So thank you so much for having me come on for hopefully a minute. Thanks, Rose. Bye. Manfred, you got any closing thoughts? 356 is in the pipeline, man. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to that, definitely. Um, thanks again uh, for, for joining us today. And uh, Ryan and, and, uh, and, of course, David, you're always a very uh, happy addition to the, uh, to the show. And uh, uh, look forward to uh, our future contributions together. Thanks, everyone. Cool. Thanks. Thank you.